The Apostle Paul at one point in his ministry around the year A.D. 51 came to a town of Thessalonica, a town of about 100,000 people to share the gospel. And there were some Jews there and there were some God-fearing Gentiles there that believed in the gospel and the good news that Paul taught about Jesus. And there was a problem, however, with the message and how it was received. The problem was not with the gospel. The problem was not with the people that received it. But the problem was with this aspect of it. When Paul came and he talked about God coming in the flesh through Jesus Christ and reigning as king over the people there in Thessalonica, well, the politics of the day already said they had a different king, the emperor in Rome. And so this became a dangerous uh, position politically and a dangerous message that Paul was preaching. Because a year earlier, all the Jews in uh, Rome had been expelled from Rome under suspicion of sedition. And the concern now was that if the emperor heard that the Jews in Thessalonica were worshiping a king other than him, well, and the city leaders there in Thessalonica not only allowed it, but they encouraged it perhaps, um, the emperor's wrath might fall upon the city of Thessalonica and they might suffer a, a very bad fate. And so Paul and his ministry partners who brought the gospel to Thessalonica had to leave. And so they did that. But Paul didn't want to leave. He wanted to stay with the new believers that believed in the message. He wanted to stay with this brand new church. Because they needed to be built up in their faith. They needed to learn the scriptures. They needed to grow in Christ. Now additionally, these new believers themselves, as Paul left them and they stayed behind, they faced pretty bad opposition and even persecution. The Jewish leaders and the city leaders that were there would transfer their angst and their anger from Paul to them, and Paul knew that. And so Paul didn't want to leave them in such a bad situation, especially these believers being so young in Christ and needing to be built up. And so Paul sent Timothy, one of his ministry partners, to Thessalonica, and he did this for two reasons. One, to strengthen and encourage them, but also to bring back to Paul a report on their spiritual condition because Paul was very worried that they might actually fall away. They might uh, abandon their faith because of the persecution and the opposition that they, were, they, they would face. And so Timothy brings back this report and uh, Paul uh, answers this report with this letter of 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to look today at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 6 through 13. I invite you to take your Bible and turn there. And we're going to learn, first of all, some life principles from Timothy's report. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, here's what we read. Paul says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. The first thing Paul mentions is faith and love. He says, Timothy brought this report back to me of faith and love. You know, these two aspects, and here's the principle, faith and love team up for your benefit. Faith and love are partners. Faith and love are two sides of the same coin, and they team up for your benefit. You know, they're inseparable partners that build up God's church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, we read, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints we do not cease giving thanks for you isn't that amazing that Paul says in in a separate letter to separate believers he said I know of your faith and I know of your love these two aspects these two qualities are not separate but they are 
somehow intermingled, somehow intertwined uh, with one another. They're inseparable. In Philemon, verses 4 and 5, listen to what Paul says there. He says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Philemon, I hear of your love, I hear of your faith. These two aspects of the Christian life are inseparable. Why are these two characteristics linked so often in the New Testament? I want you to think about this. Here's the reason. When someone has faith in God, they have faith in the creator of love. In fact, Scripture, as you know, says that God is love. And so there is no love without God. Love is, very, is a part of the very character and the very nature of God. Now, am I saying that atheists cannot love? Am I saying the people who don't believe in God, people that maybe have doubts about God, they can't love? No, I'm not saying that at all. Atheists can love. It's obvious that atheists can love. But the reason atheists can love is because the image of God is a part of who they are. Whether they believe it or not, whether they believe in God or not, the image of God is a part of every human, including atheists. It's just that atheists refuse to admit what they know that is, uh, the, what they know is inherently true, instinctively know to be true, that there is a God and that He loves them. And so we can see the anecdotal evidence of this connection between faith and love as we look around at the people in our lives, look at, back at our experiences. You show me someone who's been a faithful follower of Christ, and I'll show you someone who has great love in his heart or her heart. But I will also show you someone who, if they have absolutely no love in his heart, I'll show you someone who does not have an active faith in God. Someone who has love in his heart for others that will be enhanced and that will be magnified through their faith and God. The two are very much inseparable. There's a second principle that we read about in verse 6. Again, look at verse 6. He says, uh, not only that uh, Timothy has brought the good news of your faith and love, but secondly, he says that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we long to see you. The second principle is this. You and I are strengthened by fellowshipping with other Christians. Paul says, Timothy brought back a report that you want to see me. And he says, you know that I want to see you. We want to be together. We want to hang out together. We want to pray together. We want to build each other up. That's what fellowship really is. We want to be with one another. And when you have that fellowship with the body of believers, you will be strengthened yourself. And not only that, you will strengthen them. And so it, it is so important that as Christians, we not, uh, we not just forget and forgo the idea of going to church. Ah, I don't want to go to church today. People say, oh, I'm, I'm just being lazy. I just want to sleep in. I don't want to uh, be around those people. I just want to be by myself. I can be a Lone Ranger Christian. No, listen, you need to be with other Christians. And you know, when you wake up on that Sunday morning and you feel like, I don't want to be with other Christians, guess when you need to be with other Christians the most? It's when you don't feel like it, because when you will just overcome your feelings and act on faith and believe what God said in His Word, that, that your fellowship with other believers can strengthen you, you'll find it to be absolutely true. 
You know, when there's love in a church, people want to be together. People absolutely want to be together. And that's one of the things I love about our church. I really love this about our church. You know, I've never once heard people complain that we have to move the chairs and stack the chairs back up or we have to take down the sound system or the video system. I haven't, you've done a good job if you've been complaining about that because I haven't heard it. Not once have I heard that complaint. In fact, many times after we're done, you'll notice that people will sort of hang out and they want to be together. They want to talk with one another. Uh, people aren't just in a mad dash to get out and run away from the people in this room because we love one another. We care about one another. We like to fellowship with one another. In fact, sometimes people have lunch together after worship. You know, wouldn't it be sad if right after worship there was no interaction and everyone just went their separate direction like scattered cats all over the place? Um, you know, there are churches like that where there's no interaction, no cordiality, no affection, there's no love. And what kind of church is that? That's not much of a church. It may not be a church at all. Paul wanted to be with his congregation that he started. And he knew that they wanted to be with him. In fact, Paul was so excited to hear that they wanted to be with him. It had an effect on Paul. And it leads us to the very next principle. The next principle is this. Your spiritual health actually gives life to other people. I want you to think about this. You might think, Ah, oh, my spiritual condition doesn't matter that much. It doesn't matter whether I pray. It doesn't matter whether I, I go to church. It doesn't matter whether I read my Bible. It, you know, these things, it, it doesn't affect anyone other than me. That's not true. When you pray and you read your Bible and you do those things, like fellowshipping with other believers that build you up, that strengthen your faith, without even realizing it, did you know that you are infusing other people with spiritual life? You're giving people the power of life itself. Your spiritual health actually gives life to other people. What am I talking about? Verse 7, Paul says, For this reason, reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. You see, apparently the good report that Timothy brought back to Paul prompted Paul to write this letter to the, uh, that we call 1 Thessalonians, this letter back to Thessalonica, uh, the Christians there in Thessalonica. And when we read and we study 1 Thessalonians, we find that it's filled with deep emotion. It's filled with, uh, especially more than anything else, there's thanksgiving over and over again. Paul talks about how grateful he is, how thankful he is. And it's as if Paul lived and died with the ups and downs of the congregation. When Paul had this worry in his mind that this congregation that was without its pastor might flounder and die, it killed him emotionally. He couldn't stand it. He had to send Timothy back and bring me a report. I've got to know how my spiritual children are doing. He was living and dying with their faith, with their vitality. You know, when a pastor's heart is truly invested in the church that he serves, he is lifted up spiritually when people are healthy spiritually. But when a, God's people are weak, when God's people are hurting, when God's people are dismayed, the pastor himself can get discouraged. Uh, the pastor has uh, 
a reciprocal effect in the congregation, likewise, upon the pastor. And there's at least one person in your life that you hurt when they're hurt. But when someone is, something is going good in their life, it's going good for you. There's that connection that you have. And it just pains you when you hear bad news about uh, the, that someone in your life. But when uh, that's going through a bad time, but when they're going through good times, when God's blessings are overflowing in their lives, uh, you are lifted up yourself spiritually. You are relieved. Who is that person? For Paul, it was his spiritual children in Thessalonica as he wrote this. And I want to read to you some thoughts that Paul wrote to different congregations. I want you to listen to how much he identified with them. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16, 18, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. These people have refreshed both of us. There's a connection there. In 2 Corinthians, later to the same congregation, he writes, For this reason we have been comforted, and besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Here again, there's that connection. In Philemon, verse 7, Paul says, For I have come to have joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Paul says, Philemon, you have benefited other Christians, and by effect, that's benefited me. I've come to have much joy and comfort in your love. Later in the same book, in Philemon verse 20, he says, Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. How could Philemon, who's receiving a letter hundreds of miles away, benefit Paul? If Philemon allowed his slave Onesimus to be free and to come back to Paul. If Philemon would benefit Onesimus, Paul says, that has an effect on me. That benefits me. You see, there's this incredible interaction. There's this incredible uh, bonding that we have with one another, whether we realize it or not. And Paul, as a pastor, Paul, as an apostle, and as a believer even, identified with other believers. You see, if you're spiritually healthy, if you're right with God, then you can actually breathe life, spiritual life, into other people. But I want you to know it's conditional. It's conditional. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. The implication is that you have a choice to make. You might not. You might choose to not stand firm. You might choose to be tossed here and there by the waves of society and, and uh, have any type of attitude that anyone else gives you. Someone else is having a bad day, makes you have a bad day. Someone else mistreats you, brings you down. Instead of standing firm in the Lord. Someone opposes you as a Christian faith, you just sort of forget about the fact that you're a Christian. You're a follower of Christ. You might choose not to stand firm. You know, when it comes to our salvation, we need to understand something. When you got saved, 
Your faith was established forever in your heart. It was established. It's there forever in your heart. But your faith was not complete on the day you got saved. Your faith is a living thing, if I can call it a thing. Your faith can grow. Your faith can also shrink. Your faith can be small or it can be great. Your faith can be weak or it can be strong. Your faith can be diminished by you or it can be enhanced by you. You make choices that affect the strength and vitality or on the other side, the weakness of your faith. We do have this promise from God, though. The promise that we have from God is that one day he will bring it to completion. It's not complete yet, but one day he will do that. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's a fourth principle that we learn from Timothy's report to Paul, and it's this. Listen, if you stand firm in your faith, you can multiply thankfulness in others exponentially. How? You just, by you just standing firm, by you being a strong Christian and standing firm in your faith and not being tossed about by every wind and doctrine and everything that comes along in life, you standing firm in your faith, by simply doing that, you can multiply the gratitude that other people have. You can multiply that exponentially. What am I talking about? Verses 9 and 10. Paul says, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with, with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. What's Paul saying? Paul says, I am overwhelmingly grateful to God and yet I realize that I'm incapable of giving God the gratitude that he deserves. Have you ever been so thankful to God for something? And yet, the words escape you. You don't even know how to express your thankfulness to God. That's where Paul was when he wrote this. Psalm 116 verse 12 says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Think of everything that God has done for you. The old hymn, Count Your Blessings. Name them one by one. How can you ever repay God for all of his blessings? How can you ever say thank you enough to God? There's not enough time in the day to say thank you to God enough to repay him for all of his benefits that he gives us. How can we ever do that? Paul thought that. He was so grateful to God, yet he was incapable of even expressing it in the proper manner to a degree that God deserved. You know, you might think that Paul would be satisfied with all of this. Paul was all wrapped up and worried about this congregation that, that was going to be left without a pastor and he didn't really know what to do. He had to run out under cover of darkness and leave this congregation. And, and all they had, they didn't even have the New Testament. It was still being written. This is one of the first letters in the New Testament that was written. And all they had was each other and the Hebrew Scriptures and the Holy Spirit. But when you have the Holy Spirit and you have the Hebrew Scriptures, and when we have one another, that's enough. But here's Paul, all worried about this congregation, the opposition that they're going to 
of faith, and whether they'll stand firm in their, in their faith. He gets back a good report from Timothy. And you would think that Paul might say, good enough for me. I'm glad you're doing good. I'm just going to keep journeying on my journey. But no, that's not what Paul says. That's not what he wants to do, at least. It caused him, this good report caused him to want to be with them even more. Verse 10, he says, as night and day keep, uh, day, as night and day keep uh, praying most earnestly that we may see your face. He still wanted to see them. He still wanted to be with them and make complete what is lacking in your faith. Paul knew that even as strong as they were and his encouragement for them to stand firm, he knew they still need to be built up. They still need to grow stronger. And so Paul has, before Paul ever gets to the exhortation part of this letter, which begins in chapter 4, Paul has a prayer. All of this time in chapters 1 through 3, Paul has been expressing his concern and his love. He's been expressing his gratitude for this congregation. And he's been uh, telling now of this report that he got back from Timothy. And Paul has a prayer for them. And it's what theologians call a wish prayer. You know what a wish prayer is? It's simply a prayer that expresses a deeply held desire to God. And it's more than just a prayer, though. This prayer reiterates some themes that we've already covered, and it touches on some places that Paul is about to go in the rest of this book. He's going to give some clues about what he's about to write. And the prayer begins in verse 11. It goes through verse 13. And he says this, and this is so significant. He says, now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. I want you to think about this. Paul addresses this prayer to who? To whom? To our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord. Let me tell you why this is significant. This letter was written around A.D. 52, okay? Less than 20 years after Jesus died on a cross and rose from the grave. Skeptics to the Christian faith tell us, ah, Christianity, it's built on a myth. They say, oh, those, those earliest Christians, they didn't believe that Jesus was God, they just believed he was a good man. They believed that he was just a good teacher. This whole myth that Jesus is God, it was developed much later. And we know that myths and legends like this take decades, probably 70 to 100 years or more to develop before people start worshiping someone who's gone and passed away as, as a god. Skeptics have long held that the earliest Christians didn't truly worship Jesus like you and I do as God. They say that that myth takes of God becoming a man developed over time. There's no way that it could have developed that quickly. But here's the problem that these skeptics have to face. We have written proof dated 20 years after Christianity began that Christians 
were equating Jesus with God. How? Because Paul wrote a prayer addressed to God and Jesus. Paul was equating God the Father and Jesus, the man on earth. In fact, Paul isn't even trying to make a case that Jesus is God. He simply assumes that Jesus is God. It's already common knowledge, another fact. In other, in other words, that, that Jesus is God. And this means that the Christians in Thessalonica already believed that Jesus is God. If they didn't believe it, if they thought that Jesus was just a good man or a moral teacher or something like that, Paul wouldn't have addressed a prayer to a good man. You don't see Paul praying to Gamaliel or Paul praying to the head Pharisee or Paul praying to anyone else. No, you only pray to God. And Paul prays to Jesus right here. He equates God the Father and Jesus. And so this is incredibly significant. It is definitive proof that the earliest Christians from day one believed that Jesus died on a cross, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven as Lord over all. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is God, God in the flesh. And so Paul has this request, this prayer that he makes to God the Father and to Jesus our Lord. And the first thing that Paul prays for is that God might somehow allow him to return to Thessalonica. In verse 11 he says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. May God clean a path, clear a path. May God get all these obstacles, all this opposition out of the way so I can come back and be with you. All these things that Satan put in Paul's way, Paul was trusting that God would somehow remove those and that he could have a way to get back to the congregation that he so loved. You know, this should remind us that God is always intimately involved in our lives. God is always intimately involved in the affairs of mankind. And this means that we should come to God in prayer about everything. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Paul has a second request in verse 12 that their love would increase. Paul says, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. You know, our love for each other and our love for all people, lost people, should not just increase, but it should overflow. I mean, we should have so much love in our hearts that it infects other people. The other people notice it. Think about how difficult it might be for the love of these Thessalonians to um, overflow into the community. Why? Because the leaders in the community hated them, blamed them for potentially being troublemakers. They were hated. They were opposed by the very people they were trying to reach. And Paul prays that their love might increase for essentially their enemies have you ever faced that kind of dynamic 
I mean, for you not only had to be nice to someone who mistreated you, but you knew that you had to love them. I mean, that's a hard thing to do, but that's what Paul was calling them to do. And of course, this instruction is found in Jesus' words, to love our enemies. And Paul gives a reason for his prayer. In verse 13, he says, So that he, God, may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. The reason for Paul's prayer is so that their hearts might be established in holiness. When there's an increase in love, that results in an increase in holiness. Earlier we learned that faith and love were intimately tied to one another, and so is faith, uh, love and holiness. In other words, if you want to be a person that has a blameless, sanctified heart, that can only grow in an environment where there's love. In Romans 13, 8, we read, He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Think about that. He who loves his neighbor has obeyed God, has become holy. A lot of people think that, uh, that in fact, I think a lot of them are masquerading as uh, Christians because there's no love in their hearts. They're always angry, always demeaning, always accusing. You know, in my ministry, I've been in the ministry long enough to uh, see uh, far too many examples of uh, church members who thought they were mature in Christ because they've been sitting in a pew or sitting in a church chair all their lives. But there's no love. There's no love. There's got to be love. Where is the love for God's people? You know, where's the love for the prodigal son? Where's the love for the church's under-shepherd? Where's the love, most importantly, for the lost? Where's the love for the lost? You know, some very, I, I call them churchy people. I don't know if they're Christians or not, but they're churchy. Some churchy people mistake holiness for a sour disposition. You know, what's wrong with him? Oh, he, he's just holy. Well, maybe he's just grumpy. I don't know. Holiness is not grumpiness. Holiness is not a sour disposition. You know, the most holy people I've ever been around happen to be the most loving people. The people that would do anything for you. The people that would do their very best to treat you with kindness and affection. And today, I think that we need to make a decision. We need to make a decision in each one of our lives. And the decision is simply this, to choose the path of God's love. Because when you choose the path of God's love, it has an effect on your faith. It has an effect on your holiness. Both of these are intimately and inseparably twined with the love of God. And when you choose to be a partner with God and His love, you're not just saying, God, yes, I want to receive your love. But you're saying, God, I want to give it. I want to be your vehicle through which you can be a blessing and I can help love other people. And when you let the love of God that is in your heart fill up and overflow into the lives of other people, the promise that you have from God is that you will increase in holiness. You will become more and more like Christ. This is the promise that we have from God. But we have to understand that we are partners with God in our own spiritual growth. And when 
God is seeking your spiritual growth, and you finally come to the point where you seek your own spiritual growth and do the things that cause that, some great and incredible things can really happen.